Language is crucial to understanding societies. It's crucial to recognising the ecological, social, political and economic conditions in which we live. We use language to frame problems, formulate solutions, to negotiate and communicate political and economic pitfalls. Language is interaction that can accelerate action. But language is also performance, and performances can be used to distract from inaction, to avoid action, or postpone action, as much as to accelerate it. And language is what we focus on in this second series of our Language and Power podcast. Hi, Tom. Hi there, Michael. How are we? Not bad, not bad. Have yeah, nice good. Break. Good. Yeah, so we had a break from the podcast last week, and this is our final episode of this series. Ah, yeah. Uh, more on that uh, at the end. But we're talking to, back to one of our kind of key topics on on climate change. This is looking at some of the IPCC reports. It's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change releases reports every uh, number of years, eight years, and. Recently, over the past couple of months, they've released a couple of reports. So the way that this works is there are working groups. So I've got a nice little summary, which I will also link to in the in the notes. The Guardian kind of gives a, a little explanation of what's going on. There are three working groups that make up the IPCC. Each publish their own reports. The first looks at the physical basis of climate change. The second group um, assesses the effect of climate change. And the third group looks at ways of cutting emissions. So we're going to have a look at the, the second two of, of those very briefly because they're huge reports. So what happens is that there are vast reports written by huge numbers of scientists working in these fields, looking at the research that's been carried out in each of the various areas. And then they also produce summaries for policymakers, which in themselves are also quite big. Yeah, the summary, the one summary here, the summary for policymakers, 64 40 pages, pages long. 40 pages in the same. I've got the second yeah. document, yeah. and that's 40 pages just for yeah. the summary. Yeah, and the summary... The whole the... document yeah. Yeah. is an awful lot more than that. The whole document is 3,675 pages, and that's one document out of four that are going to be produced. Yeah, yeah. So a lot, a lot coming out, and, it, you know, it's a complex issue, so... Probably you need there's there's a lot of space that needs, but we're going to have a, a, a talk about that before we get into that. When we can't we can't analyze all of this for a thirty minute podcast, of course. But we we want to talk about that as an issue, perhaps later on. But I'll, we'll just start by maybe summarizing some of the reaction to this report, which will give us a sense of of you know what the the the, the reports are saying. So. Uh, Greenpeace, the campaign group, have put together a little page of the 12 best tweets about the new IPCC report. This was published in April, back in the 6th, on the 6th of April 2022. And I'll just give you a flavour of some of these, and this will give a sense of what the, the report is saying. So the first one is from the Secretary-General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, who says the latest IPCC report is a litany of broken climate promises. Some government and business leaders are saying one thing, but doing another. They are lying. It is time to stop burning our planet. He tweets another time. Climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals, but the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. Investing in new fossil fuels infrastructure is moral and economic madness. We've got others. A brief summary of the new IPCC report. We know what we 
what to do. We know how to do it. It requires taking toys away from the rich and world leaders aren't doing it. So also, I'll just read one more from Greta Thunberg since we've spoken about her in some length in the previous series. When reading the new IPCC report, keep in mind that science is cautious and this has been watered down by nations in negotiations. Many seem more focused on giving false hope to those causing the problem rather than telling the blunt truth that would give us a chance to act. So that's a flavour of those. But you get it. I think you get a sense there, don't you, Tom, of, of what um, yeah. the significance of the thrust of what's in these reports. But um, let's have a look at s- some parts of the report, these reports. Um, yeah, because... I think we've said that, as we said in the beginning, it's just we can only look at parts, and that raises a few questions. I mean, those are very interesting tweets, as you say, but I I wonder how many of the people tweeting read the whole 12,000 pages, whatever it's going to be. And it just it's it's thinking about, you know, when, when we suggested that we would look at this today and then going and seeing the magnitude of these reports, thinking about one of the things we often, we've said in the series that you've got to contextualise everything you're talking about and and put it into perspective not just finding things that agree with you or that you'd like to disagree with that you can critique and trying to put things in the context and trying to work, looking at this document trying to work out what what we could possibly do in order to analyze it i mean what we're going to do today is all we can do i think we both found interesting things to talk about that tell us something about the nature of the document but if you really wanted to do a full critical analysis of this document i, I i'm not even sure where we'd begin but you certainly need to do an, an awful lot of different takes on it but Right. Yeah. So just with that word of caution, I'm throwing that in because we're going to look at individual bits ourselves and say things about them. But what they actually mean in the bigger picture of this whole document is 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 not not always clear. I'm not sure it ever will be clear. Uh, so sorry, I just want to throw that caveat in there because it's you know just a good working principle when you're doing critical stuff not not to cherry pick so and we're mm. just about to cherry pick so cherry pick alert cherry pick alert yeah uh, so yeah just bearing that in mind sorry where were we yeah well i mean we, we we necessarily do have to have to take parts of this for the podcast i think what we're i guess what we can aim to do is raise some questions and perhaps avenues for further inquiry rather than come to anything conclusive but we've got two of these reports from Working Group Two and Working Group Three, and sh- should we start with the fir- with the the one that you were looking at, Tom? This is on impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability. So, if we turn to this uh, initial document, and we're sort of looking at the nature of the language that's there and the questions that might be asked, there's a, there's a, an interesting one that came up with the complexity of the the language. And we can find here, for example, one of the questions that we might want to ask is on this page here, page uh, three, lines 41 to 47, a phrase, adaptation plays a key role in reducing risks and vulnerability from climate change. Implementing adaptation and mitigation actions together with SDGs help to exploit synergies, reduce trade-offs and make policy more effective. From a risk perspective, limiting atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations reduces climate-related hazards, while adaptation and sustainable development reduce exposure and vulnerability to those hazards. Adaptation facilities develop. Now, this is a sentence I'm really interested in. Adaptation facilitates development, which is increasingly hindered by impacts and risks from climate change. Development facilitates adaptation by expanding the resources and capacity to reduce climate risks and vulnerability. If we look at the grammar of that sentence, we'll see that there's a whole load of processes in there: adapting, facilitating, developing, increasing, hindering, risking, changing. But there's very few people or things involved there. It's this whole process that we've talked about before where uh, turning processes into 
things and getting rid of actors, it sets up this whole notion of interconnecting processes in this complex chain of events, but there's, there's so little in there about who's responsible for these, where they're taking place, how we're going to adapt to them, who's involved, what's involved, how time frames. It's all lost because of this nominalization process. Mm. So it seems like it's covering a lot of ground and making some very general points in very sophisticated language, but it's it's not really saying a lot at the end of the day. It's quite impenetrable. And I think, you know, this might be what relating to the whitewash that, that Gutierrez refers to in the fact that there's no responsibility there. But in terms of the CDA, I'll probably see this as a starting point to say, okay, it's saying these in these general terms, these very specific terms to talk about complex interactions. But before critiquing that language specifically, apart from its complexity, it'd be interesting, you know, is this taken up elsewhere? Does this appear elsewhere in the text? Is this Does this agency reappear? But if so, if it's buried away in, you know, half a volume two, what, what's the purpose of it? What, where are we going with this? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. So on a methodological kind of sense, you, you notice this lack of agency, lack of representation of social actors in this part. So the question is, do, does it appear anywhere else in the document, which we can't quite look at today, but there's, there's, there's your question, which is an important one. I, I, I looked at the other, another document, and this is exactly what I'd noted down as well. Let's look at social actors and, and the social systems, which seem to be absent. Now... It makes me wonder, one of the things that scientific writing tends to want to do is not to talk about social issues and point the finger, I guess. I don't know if I'm being, you know, if I'm characterizing scientific writing properly there, but it, it, this, this, this is what, what you've identified. And I wonder if you can understand the problem. Can you even understand the problem properly if you're not at the same time identifying the social causes, you know, there's a question. I, I, I don't, I don't know the answer to it. I, I, my suspicion is that it's, it's difficult. I mean, if you, if you're trying to describe a problem and you're trying to siphon off a, a huge part of what's causing that problem, then it seems unlikely to me that you're going to get a really good grasp of yeah. problem, the problem itself. And I think that's where we're, we're at with this. It's working at a real level of abstraction, isn't it? Which is very typical of of a lot of scientific or technical discourse. Yeah. But it's yeah. not what people use in everyday life, and it's not what uh, other groups use. It's actually interesting. It makes a reference to the need to incorporate indigenous knowledge. It makes no reference to how, what, or by yeah. whom we we do this. But it it's a nod to yeah. you know the fact that we as we saw indigenous knowledge was a large part of the the COP. But just to, yeah. to nod to, but. Normally, indigenous knowledge, sorry, this is, that's a huge generalisation, but when people work in their own context, things are very situated. There are agents, yeah. there are actors, there are yeah. processes, there yeah. are timeframes. And in order to understand what's going on, you need to be able to, people often need to be able to relate to these very specific practices and they don't understand such abstractions. So, so it, it, it's, it's not going to help uh, people understand it when it's at this level of abstraction, as you say. Yeah, yeah. Self-promotional. I've just been writing a book at, that, that sort of looks at some of these things too. And one of the things I'm, I'm kind of arguing a little bit in there is about there's a sense of fatalism that comes out of, of talking about these things in the abstract. So if you talk about these huge processes without recognising the agency behind what's contributing to those, 
you haven't got a clear idea of well, how, what do you do about it? How do you start tackling that in human terms when you've taken all the humans out? No. I guess is a simple way of putting it. No, and it's often said, what the point you make is often said, isn't it, in terms of inevitability, in terms of uh, political discourse, where people yeah. say things in abstractions as if these processes are inevitable, we can't do anything about it, tough luck. Uh, what would be called symbolic violence by Bourdieu, that we believe these things are, are inevitable. Whereas this is sort of doing the opposite. This is this is talking about a good thing, adaptation, yeah. but <laughs> by being phrased in these general terms, it's sort of inevitable, as you say, but it's not inevitable, of course, is it? We actually need people to do these things. Mm, yeah. We need people to... It will not just happen unless specific people do it in specific contexts. Yeah. Now, why? What, so what, is there, on the other hand, so, I mean, I guess a, a question then, if we were going to do this properly, would be then, well, let's have a look and see if there's any other parts where where agency is, is identified. So that let's kind of bracket that. Uh, that's why I was thinking, of course, of course in the later volumes, there might be case studies yes. that talk about precisely this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, 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 we kind of we'll kind of bracket that off as a, as a kind of question at, at this point. The other, on the other, on the other hand, I wonder if there is an advantage of talking about the abstract. Yeah, I mean, yep. it 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 means that you can talk about large scale processes, and and after all, we're talking about global effects of activity affecting whole species, whole ecosystems, and so on. So, it's at some point, we do want to acknowledge that this part of the problem is not local not localized pollution that's a problem yeah. in itself but a separate problem or you know, related but but kind of distinct but the the totality of all the pollution all the gases all the things that are going on the immense scale of that makes it a new kind of qualitative problem yeah. doesn't it? It, it so no i get you I, I think this is again the idea not not necessarily criticizing things but critiquing things when we see sentences yeah. like that it's very easy to say that but you're absolutely right. I mean, on the one hand, you could say it gets rid of moral responsibility of the people doing it, but at the same time, later on in the document, it talks about how complex the situation is and how it's locally contingent. In other words, it's dependent on local factors. That's exactly what we would argue for our analysis of CDA. Yeah, so that's yeah. a good point. And yeah. so, it's a, so where does this abstraction take us? It's to, you know, we want to recognise that there's a whole lot of abstraction there and that the things have been taken out of time and yeah, human agency. Yeah. But we then do want to recontextualise it. Does it ever get put yeah, back in space? Right, and on the one right. hand, it could be saying no one's responsible, no one particularly to blame. If we do a case study, I have to you know, allocate agency to a particular person or blame a particular person. Mm, but mm. without that case study, it's still beyond yep. the grasp, isn't it? So it's, yep. it's, it's not necessarily good or bad. It's just awkward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. It, it, if you do what you'd want to see is, is is some kind of contextualization to kind of bring this back into the human scale because you know after all humans are causing this problem so we need to kind of get back to well, what are, what are humans actually doing to do this and what can humans do so thinking about why why you would want to remove the human agency from some of this description or at least de-emphasize the human agency in some of this description here one of the arguments that people might put forward is, well, it's not the scientist's place to do that. It's, you know, they, they don't want to go beyond their area of expertise. And some of these people are climate scientists, you know, looking at the chemistry of the atmosphere and all sorts of things. They're not social scientists. They're not people who kind of necessarily look at social systems. So maybe they shy away from doing something like that because of that reason, or because it's contentious as well. It's politically contentious. 
and they perhaps don't want to do that and see it's see it as somebody else's role to make those connections yeah that's interesting this connects a bit in a way just digressing a little on that on the whole covid debate and scientific knowledge and a certain scientific understanding as well we know what could have stopped covid spreading you lock everybody up in isolation for 10 days it can't spread end of story that's the scientific evidence but that is only only part of the story therein is can we do that what are the economic effects will people do that the behavioral science need to come in because if you don't do that and you just say well we're giving all the correct information why why is it still spreading then there's a problem so science divorcing itself and, and relating itself more you know to the Mm-hmm. This very technical, abstract, natural sciences, without thinking about how society interacts to do these things, is I, I don't think you can divorce yourself from that because at the end of the day, it, it's got to be reintegrated into society. If you want to think about how these abstractions take place and what are the local features that make it possible, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. abstractions are great, but then yeah, where 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 do we? And here's another bit of self, 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 uh, not, uh, self, self-promotion, not, not selfless shame promotion. Uh, this is exactly what I looked at in, in my thesis and my, the monograph that grew out. That was the idea that it was people interacting in the Guyanese rainforest and it was scientists presenting their abstract knowledge and the local community leaders recontextualized that in terms of what it meant in de- daily practice. And that my, my original point of view was that the scientists were being far too abstract and not be not being at all helpful and it was only the the local elders that were useful but my my view now is that actually both these parts were needed we needed the mm. the authority of one being recontextualized and the piggybacking off each other and this interplay so it, rather than critique that abstract language i would say it's part of the story and it's it's not enough which yeah. is more or less what we've been saying yeah 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 no that's that's yeah that's interesting did you have another example that you wanted to um well, I was thinking we, we talked about this earlier. You, I think you talked about another one I just looked, picked up on was uh, this idea that it's covering all the bases. Who's it written for? Mm. Is this just a document that has to be put out? There's no one is supposed to understand this. It's just everyone getting there saying, we're not blaming anybody. We're covering every base. And it's it, it's almost, you can tell it's a document written by a uh, committee par excellence. And I, do, I just want to find one example that I found of that. But I think you, you've got an example with footnotes afterwards. And this is yeah. from the summary for policymakers on page 31, and it's uh, paragraph D.1.1. So uh, here's, the, here's the sentence. It's halfway down the paragraph. The sentence goes like this. Climate resilient development pathways are progressively constrained by every increment of warming, in particular beyond 1.5 degrees centigrade, social and economic inequalities, the balance between adaptation and mitigation varying by national, region and local circumstances and geographies, according to capabilities, including resources, vulnerability, culture and values, past development choices leading to past emissions and future warming scenarios, bounding the climate resilient development pathways remaining, and the ways in which development trajectories are shaped by equity and social and climate justice. Justice. Does that clarify it for you? <laughs> well, then it says brackets very high confidence. So you know, <laughs> well, I love the modality in there. So this is the modality that's used all the way through. Forget the must, should, could. Yep, they have yep. brackets just with a, yep. an indicator. But yep, this is yep. where yep. people have taken a simple idea, and every single person who's been involved in the writing of this paper has added a caveat or another word to make sure that everything's included. But we've got such a 
density of information that they had nothing mm. included because you've got they've mm. come up with this really really complicated sentence that says hey listen everything's important and and it really would need unpacking so who's this document serving is it just yeah. so that all these groups can say that's my bit in there that's on the record this document it's what Srikant Sarangi has uh, uh, referred to as a ritual document no one's supposed to read it understand it it's just it's supposed to be there to be in order to be there and it, yeah. it reads a bit like yeah. that to me we've all got our statement down how is that going to help practice yeah yeah that's an interesting one because i mean it, it's called summary for policy policy makers it's got <laughs> it's got it up at the top now which policy makers can't have the time to read this you, i mean i i think we've both done research in, in you know in, in the kind of background of pol policy uh, here and when I, whenever i've been into uk policy making places ministries and so on here in britain and, and, and other places the people who have time to read this sort of thing are further and further away from the decision making person that you know in the high hierarchy the decision maker the real decision makers the ministers perhaps have yeah they will read a lot but they'll re they'll they're reading lots of different things very quickly and getting things, you know, really quickly summarized in, in sound bites, in small sentences and so on. So that, although they do read a lot, wouldn't imagine that somebody who's going to actually make decisions will have time to read this document in detail. And then so on and so on down the hierarchy. When you get to somebody who has time to spend time to read it, spend time digesting it, spend time synthesizing the information that they've been given and then kind of go on and, and kind of make recommendations to their superiors up, up in the hierarchy. Yeah, they'd be quite low down in the, in the hierarchy. I would have thought, you know, Definitely, based yeah. on what I've seen in, in other places in, in, in research. So it's a long document, very convoluted. You'd have to have quite a very good grasp of what, what all this means in order to really understand it in, in order to then make a decision or rec recommendation yeah. on this so it's um yeah even, even though it's called summary for policymakers, uh, you know it, it's po policymakers are not just one thing you know they're, they're, there's a there's a whole set of people who are, yeah. are together, who are the policy makers what level of policy yeah 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 but it's it's it seems to me that this is very far from being the kind of document that would really cut through to people who have got the real decision-making power, it would need a lot of translation, at least, you know, to, to kind of get to, to somebody, you know, like at ministerial level or, or you know, chief, chief executive level of an organisation. I think translation is yeah. the important point there, isn't it? Because you're talking about that idea of a translation is how I talk about, you know, what, what the Indigenous leaders were doing with the scientific knowledge yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. It's a two-way process, I think. One Actually, an important issue is that we often think about public understanding of the science is mm. often mentioned and the idea of simplifying science or putting science into more uh, concrete terms relating to people's practice so that people can understand it. There's the converse problem, and it's something I'm always going on about when I'm a wee bit of a hobby horse here, where actually we need scientists to understand people's situated lives as well. So that this idea that science is disinterested and neutral and abstract is, is not true. It has effects on people's lives. and It's really important to understand the social embeddedness and there are nods to this here you've got all these little caveats that says we oh and of course we have indigenous knowledge oh and of course it has to be recontextualized but there's from the little i've read there's I haven't seen any great hope that this is being done yet but maybe that's something that needs to be done 
at the local level by policymakers. But again, as you've suggested there, this doesn't seem to be the handbook that's going to enable you to do mm. that. Mm. So I'm not quite sure. This presents some, uh, you know, somebody in policymaking circles, this presents a, a huge task to, to kind of digest this and, and work out what to do. That's a legitimate task, but it's not an easy task. It doesn't present them with something that's pre this easy. I don't know how you would, I don't know how you would get around that. But it, it takes on to the next document, the the, sort of the working group three uh, document, which is about mitigation of climate change. Which in some ways is well, what do we now do about it? And there's there's some there's a different a different issue with this one. Uh, and we'll put the link to this document again in the, in the description of the podcast if you want to have a, a look at it. Now the the problem with this one is is, is or what I see as a problem is, is that it's very, I would say it's even more impenetrable than the one that we've just been looking at. And it's partly to do with the format. Now there's a nice glossy image on the front of houses with solar panels on the roofs, you know, so it's got that, that kind of polish to it. But when you look at the, the first paragraph, it says introduction and framing, working group three, brackets WG3, contribution to the IPC6 assessment report, brackets AR6, assesses literature on the scientific, technological, environmental, economic, and social aspects of mitigation of climate change. Square brackets, footnote one, close square brackets, levels of confidence, square brackets, footnote two, close square brackets, are given in round brackets. Numeral ranges are presented in square, square brackets. References to chapters, sections, figures, and boxes, and the underlying report and the technical summary are given in curly brackets. Right, so that's the first sentence that you get for, for, for this really important report. Now, there are the technical technical aspects of how do you understand this, and this is what it's trying to give you, but it is doing it in a way that really slows the start of what they're telling you. And I, I guess, what, what's my point? If, if, you're, if, you want, if you're saying something important, in a document like this, you say the important thing first. You know, what's the conclusion? What's the upshot? What's the headline? What's the big, you know, the big, the big take from this? And this is how you teach writing, isn't it? It's, you know, put your, put your conclusion in the introduction. Tell us your <laughs> argument from the beginning. For, for, the, for, for kind of uh, scientific, social scientific kind of writing, that's what you do. We're not getting anything of that here. Then we go straight into the first footnote. And then the second footnote. So the first page is a, is a kind of quite technical sentence followed by a huge three three footnotes, and that's the entire first page of this of this document. That first sentence that I read out, and then three subsequent footnotes. Yeah, what do you what do no, you I make think of it? This coverage as well, trying to cover everything, and it's yeah. interesting in a way because I think we talked in the COP series about the necessity of having lots of different voices. Mm. to appeal to different audiences. We had, we had Arnold Schwarzenegger, we had Mia Motley, we had Tishari uh, from the, the Indigenous Voice. I, I said it was really important to have these different voices appealing to different audiences, that no one's going to appeal to everyone, everyone's going to antagonise someone, but to get this broad coalition. But here, this multitude of voices coming in, either in terms of this 20-foot-long sentence that I read out, or your shorter sentence, which is then spoiled by having three footnotes, which are 10 times the length of the original, trying to include so much, but it, it's just inclusion. It's not translating, it's not movement, it's not trying to understand these different points of view, it's just throwing as many different ideas as possible in there so that all bases are covered, but with no attempt to 
to re reconcile between these points of view, to negotiate between them. I mean, we see here, you know, we know there's social, economic and environmental factors to sustainability, uh, and we try and work between them. So we see that all these different voices are put in there, but they're not they're not integrated anyway. It's just coverage. They're all uh, to, to the extent these are all questions, of course, harking back to our original point. These are impressions that we are getting in our yeah. preliminary reading. And we would have to do an awful lot more research into this to see the extent to which is, this is true. But it brings, I'd, I'd just like to then use uh, a couple of minutes to talk about a conference that's been organized in Glasgow for September the 6th and 7th this year on the back of COP. And it's to do with precisely this issue of how we talk about sustainability, whatever that means, whether it's social, economical or environmental, within our particular fields, whether that be as teachers, as scientists, as geographers, as energy suppliers, as the fishing industry, children's literature, whatever, how we think of issues of sustainability, how that informs our practice, but also how that affects talking to other groups. So for example, you know, how does the media get scientific information and recontextualize it? How do scientists work with the media to make sure that their message is understood? How do scientists and community groups work together so that they get a mutual understanding. They both understand sustainability in totally different ways and neither one is wrong. They're coming from different places. So how do they bridge that divide and talk to each other? So this is the whole point of the conference is first of all, examining how individual sectors talk about sustainability and how that affects the practice, but then trying to see how we can bridge this gap and bringing groups together to talk about how they might achieve a better way of working together. So just to call out for that, it's called Communicating Sustainability and there'll be a, a link for the uh, people to take part on, on the podcast website. Happy yeah. for people from all areas to take part, academics, but we're really happy want people, you know, who aren't academics, who, who are involved in these issues, as grassroots level or NGOs or in the press to, to come and, and present very, very informally if they want, and just get a conversation going and get some lively interaction going and people thinking about the way forward. So there's information on how to become part of that on, on, the, on the podcast website. Yeah. It looks it's going to be really good. And I think we'll try and record a little bit of um, podcast material while we're at the conference. So so that will be good. So look out and for I the guess, Christmas special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll look at a few bonus uh, bonus episodes out of that, hopefully. And that takes us, you know, we said this is the last episode of this series. So next series, we're going to, again, go back to kind of COP issues and and the, the conference will be a kind of prequel to that. And we'll, we'll start coming back to these environmental issues in more detail. Before then, we'll have read in, all in these autumn. four reports in their 12,000-page glory. <laughs> it will take us that long to <laughs> get, get into that. But yeah, so that, that's that's great. So, I mean, I want to also say thank you to everyone for listening to to our ramblings. and Times ramblinger than others, yes. Yeah. And, and that, but that's really good. So, all right, well, should we, we'll leave those now. We're kind of raising questions, I guess, rather than coming to conclusions, exactly, like yeah. we said. And yeah. Thank you very much. We'll see you or we'll be, we'll be putting out more podcasts later in the year. Thank you very much. Okay. Right on. Bye, bye, bye.